Hi, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder. I'm a senior director at CFGI, where I help my clients with their valuation of their businesses and their intellectual property assets, which actually today is a really cool segue, as a matter of fact, because today we're going to be talking about intellectual property, which really is the secret sauce of business. And I'm pleased to welcome Nicole Galley, who's the managing member and founder of ND Galley Law. Nicole, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Hey, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate being here today. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm super excited to be talking about IP and what it is and how we can protect it. But before we jump into the meat of it, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about who you are? Absolutely. And, and Dave, you and I might be some of the only people in the world who get excited talking about IP. But I'm an IP lawyer by training. Um, I help clients protect the assets and then through registration and then also uh, large part of my practice is enforcement. So if there's a dispute of some kind, we get involved. I own my own firm here in Philadelphia, and also we have an office in New York. Uh, started it six years ago. Our, this is our anniversary month uh, after practicing for about two decades in big law. Um, so I've been doing this a while. Well, if anybody isn't excited about talking about IP, shame on them. And I'll give you a real quick overview why you should be. Because if you look at a chart of the composition of the Standard & Poor's 500, the, the largest 500 stocks on the, uh, the index there, um, probably 20 years ago, most of the composition of that index was made up of, we'll call it fixed assets. Now it's more intangible assets. That's the IP, and as I said in the opening, it's the secret sauce of business. So why don't we talk a little bit first for those who may be a little less informed. Uh, help us define what intellectual property is, because it's not just about patents, right, Nicole? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. Studies are showing that really 80% of a business's value these days is typically in some form of intellectual property. Um, one of the things that I often see talking to business owners is they don't even realize they have it. Um, everybody is familiar, for example, as you mentioned, with patents, uh, but not everyone has a business that necessarily lends itself to patent protection. Um, so the most basic form of IP that every business would have is their brand, their trademark, um, also their logo. So it would be the, the word name associated with their business and then any design that they have, but it could also be things like product names, um, packaging, product design even in certain cases could be IP. Um, you also, of course, every form of copyright that you can think of um, from a business context, some businesses, that's what they do, right? So like the new studio, that copyright is a big part of their work. Um, but even, you know, coaches, if they may have a process that they use and they've written it down the way that they've written it down, that, that's copyright protected. Um, and then my personal favorite these days in terms of thinking about IP is the fourth form of IP, which sometimes you'll talk to IP lawyers and they'll tell you that there are three forms, trademark, copyright, and patent, but really there are four. And the fourth, as you mentioned, is the secret sauce. It's trade secrets. And that's one that's really misunderstood. Um, people think it's just the Coke formula or, you know, folks have heard about the Uber Waymo case where trade secrets were stolen. And yeah, certainly it's technical trade secrets, it's formulas, but it's also every single business has it, right? It's how do you do your business? What's, who are your customers? How do you find your perfect customer? What's the best way to deliver your service if you're a service-based business? Everybody has trade secrets. And so the more that businesses become service oriented, which is of course very common these days, 
the more that we rely upon technology, lots of software, lots of uh, business methods, those can't really be protected by patents, especially under recent case law. And so that's all trade secrets. So when you start really thinking about it, you know, we call our firm an IP focused firm. And that's because really IP is everywhere and really needs to be something that you think about in everything that you do when you're running a business. And, and again, a lot of business owners aren't attuned to that yet. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the protection as we get a little bit further into this conversation. But um, you touched on a lot of different examples of IP, right? And in, in my world, the intellectual property is really a part of value creation, value enhancement. You know, it could be a process in a manufacturing uh, setting, like you said, you know, the different ways of doing things, the way we, the businesses conduct themselves. Um, can you talk a little bit about, from your perspective, about that value continuum, if you will, in terms of if there's a, a hierarchy of more valuable IP assets? Well, you know, it, it's funny because all of it works together. One of the things that I talk with my clients about is that you really are looking for a web of protection when it comes to IP. So, you know, certainly if it's your core, core product or service, um, you know, your secret sauce or, you know, your most important patented uh, product or method, Yes, there are certainly, you know, your brand, right? Like think of Nike, right? Like the Nike brand is hugely valuable in and of itself. But, you know, you take any single business out there, small or large, they don't just have one thing or even two things. It's it's all got to fit together. So I'll, one, one example that I like to use is think about product packaging. So let's talk about, for instance, um, the Coke formula. That, that's a great one, or, or Coca-Cola. Sure. Think about the old Coke bottles, though, those glass bottles. That has a number of uh, forms of IP attached to it. Now, there could be technical pieces, like if there's something unique about um, how the glass was put together or something like that. But the actual shape itself is at least two forms of IP. It, it could be protected by a design patent. That's a really important thing these days, for example, in cell phones. All of the Apple-Samsung uh, battle, that was all about the design patents and all about the design of the, the phones and the face of the phone. So you could have a design patent, but then you don't need to see that it's a Coke bottle to recognize it as a Coke bottle. Like you don't need the logo to know that it's Coca-Cola. When you think about, when I mentioned it to you, presumably, if you're at least of a certain age, that bottle popped in your mind because essentially it's functioning as a trademark. Um, Clorox bottle is another really good example of that. So, you know, the value really, it all kind of goes together and some is certainly more important than others. I mean, there's no question about it, but that's really something that, that is a decision made by each and every company in terms of where they're going to really focus and what is most important and really the driver of their business. But if they're doing it right, it's going to be a few different things at least. Yeah, Let, let's move into the trade secrets piece. And, and you alluded to this a little bit, but maybe we can take a deeper dive on it. Uh, because the trade secrets, you know, the secret sauce, if you will, it may not be the brand, it may not be a patented sort of thing. It may just be the way a business operates. Can you talk a little bit more about some examples of trade secrets to help some of the business owners who are mm -hmm. watching and listening to understand that they may actually have IP here that they weren't aware of? Oh, I'm absolutely certain they do. I'm certain that every single business owner watching this or listening to this has IP that they don't know about. Um, that is something that we actually really enjoy doing is working, especially with emerging growth businesses on finding it. 
Um, and that's where I think that, you know, to your point about valuation as, a, as an IP lawyer, that's where I think we bring the most value to the table is because we help you find what you don't even know you had. Um, and trade secrets are a big area for that. So trade secrets are really very hard to define. Uh, in some ways, and easy in others. It's the simplest of definitions. It's anything of value to the business that's kept confidential, and in, to some degree, derives its value from its confidentiality. Um, so, like, literally, that could be anything. So, it could be everything from, as I mentioned, information about your customers. It could be a customer list, but it could also be, you know, what are your customers' preferences, um, what's the pricing? Pricing is often, uh, you know, a trade secret. So there's a whole array of non-technical trade secrets really about, again, if you are a service provider, like as an attorney, I'm, I'm sure I have, I haven't even really thought about it because, right, you know, shoemaker doesn't have the shoes, <laughs> but as an attorney, I'm sure there are lots of ways that I deliver service to my clients that are trade secrets because I do it a certain way that works well for me. Um, we have a certain process that we go through when we work with a new client. Same thing. I'm sure lots of, of businesses have that. Then there are what you would more think of, and this is where the disconnect occurs. People know about customer lists, right? Because you hear about all those litigations over salespeople leaving and they took the customer list, et cetera. So, you, so people are aware of that, but it's, again, broader. And then people are aware of the formula or, or things along those lines. Um, but what where there's a big range of stuff in between. So think about, for example, any manufacturing process. Um, so you might have a patent, for instance, like uh, pick a product, the pharma product, for example, drug, medical device. You might, you absolutely are going to have patents on that. No question about it. We all know that. Right. But there's also a ton of trade secrets that go along with it. Some of it may be in the manufacturing. And again, you might have, uh, you know, patents on certain aspects of your manufacturing process as a whole or certain pieces of the equipment that you're using. But then there's an array of stuff in there. So it's everything from, you know, what's the temperature you need to run things at? What's the speed? I, I've done a lot of manufacturing cases in the trade secret area. And what you see is that it actually can be the order in which you're doing something that can really make a difference in how quickly you can generate the product in the accuracy of what you're producing from a quality standpoint. Um, and then the other thing that you also have within the trade secret world is the knowledge of what didn't work, right? So you may find like, oh my goodness, if we run something at 100 degrees versus 120 degrees, it's a total disaster at 100 degrees. But when we raise it just those 20 degrees, it works like a dream. I mean, those things happen in real life. Think about it. And that can happen not only in the manufacturing context, it can happen in other contexts as well. So that's, that's when you start thinking about what are you really doing every day and what does it take to get, you know, a product or service from, you know, point A to point B, IP's everywhere. Um, you just start seeing it everywhere and a lot of it is trade secret. And that's, I think, really why we're starting to see trade secret cases um, are really skyrocketing in number and, you know, certainly becoming more prominent. Um, you see them in every industry. I'm, I'm currently working on an article about trade secrets in the fashion industry. I mean, for instance, I mean, who would have thought, but, but it's everywhere. IP is everywhere. On that note, we're going to take a quick pause, Nicole. Don't go anywhere. We're going to pay a few bills here, and then we'll be right back on Behind the Numbers after this quick break. So, I'm kind of new here, but I've noticed a trend. My human does this funny thing where she goes around and gets all my toys, 
and then she hides them in that basket by the door. You know, but it's always the same basket, and it's always in the, in the same place. And then she acts so surprised when I find them, but, you know, she's putting them in the same basket. Again. It's like, hello? That's where you put it last time. You were the worst at hide-and-go-seek. And welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking about intellectual property with Nicole Galley, who's the managing member at ND Galley Law. Uh, Nicole, we had a really good chat in that first segment in defining what IP is and secret sauce, trade secrets. Before we jump into the second segment, I want to make sure you have a chance to tell the folks who are watching and listening how they can contact you if they want to learn more about you or maybe want to work with you. Sure. It, I'm easy to find uh, either on our website, for example, ndgalleylaw.com or on LinkedIn. Uh, we also do Twitter, uh, have a Facebook page too, so not hard to find me. All right. Check her out on socials. Let's talk a little bit about now, we've, we've established that the IP creates value and that, as you said at the end of the first segment, IP is everywhere. So how do we go about protecting that intellectual property, Nicole? Sure. It depends on, on the type that you have. Um, so the first thing to do is to sit down, I think, and, you know, if you're starting from a clean slate and think about what's really of most value and then prioritize it because you can, you know, spend a fortune trying to protect absolutely everything and not everything may be necessary. Um, certainly one thing you should think about protecting first, if you haven't already, is your trademark. Um, both your company name, maybe key product names or service names if you have those. Um, and a logo, um, you know, the logo should be something that, that you're planning to use for a long time. Uh, the other thing you should look at, of course, is whether what form of content IP, if you will, you have. So, uh, you know, is it a patent? Is it um, something that has to be or better protected by a trade secret? If it's a patent, you go to a patent attorney, which that's, that's one thing I'm not, um, although we do litigate patent cases all the time. Um, but you can work with a patent attorney to determine whether what you have truly is uh, patentable. There's a lot of uh, standards around that. Um, but even then you have a choice. You don't have to get a patent just because you can, and there's pros and cons on that. And if you choose to go the trade secret route, uh, there's a number of things you can do to protect that. That would be a whole, in fact, I teach whole classes on how to do that. Um, the basics, of course, are, you know, your common basics, have good agreements, make sure they have NDAs, uh, make sure you have employment agreements with key employees, make sure you really exercise confidentiality. Uh, the standard is reasonableness, um, so absolute secrecy is never going to be possible, um, but you have to take reasonable steps to protect trade secrets. Um, and then lastly, copyrights. Uh, you know, I think for a lot of businesses, copyrights are not as important unless you are in a content-rich uh, field, in which case that, that can be very, very important. Um, so, you know, working with a, an attorney who has a more holistic view, who really takes uh, 
a dive with you into what the value is for your business would be my recommendation uh, rather than just, you know, saying I'm going to do X, Y, or Z, really talk to an attorney about it. Um, and I'm all, also very leery of there's a lot of self-help opportunities out there like LegalZoom and whatnot, but they're not going to give you necessarily the right advice or steer you in the right direction of what you should be doing for your company. So that's, that's how you go about it. Yeah, a lot of times one size fits all doesn't really fit anyone. Uh, I can tell you from a uh, valuation lens, uh, when you talk about we value intellectual property assets, uh, the key for us is it has to be quantifiable. So there's got to be either some kind of income stream, a benefit that's derived from it, or a cost saving so that we can actually quantify what the value of that IP is. So maybe as you're thinking about how to prioritize and protecting, maybe there's some hand in hand there. For sure. There could be things that have uh, less quantifiable value to it. Um, but I think you're right. I think in most cases, it, it is something that you should at least see if you can quantify it. And that's going to be important later in enforcement. Um, because very often, for instance, when it comes to trade secrets, one of the biggest problems we see is it's not been well documented. So, you know, how much the investment went into creating the trade secret, uh, what were the cost savings from using the trade secret? If those things are often, as I'm sure you're no, you know, Dave, from your work, hard to recreate on the back end. So the more you do that work on the upfront end, keeping good records, thinking about those issues ahead of time, the better position you're in down the road. Oh, yeah, because you, obviously you want to avoid the litigation matter. But if you do wind up there, the key is how do you quantify what those damages are? So always a good exercise. And you've offered really prudent advice there. Um, Nicole, I want to shift gears a little bit here because I want to talk about something that I know is near and dear to you. And a lot of the folks who are watching and listening are entrepreneurs or have an entrepreneurial itch. So I always love to get a perspective uh, of a business owner. And I want to have you, if you would, please share your journey of entrepreneurship with the audience. Sure. It's, it, it's something I wish I had done a long time ago, which I think a lot of people say. Um, so I've been practicing law since the early 90s. I started in New York in a firm no longer exists, called Dewey Valentine, big law firm, uh, came here, joined Pepper Hamilton, uh, was a partner here in Philadelphia, um, left there a little over 10 years ago, uh, did a couple other things within essentially what we would still think of as big law. There, there were smaller firms, but, but that was sort of the perspective. Um, and finally, really decided uh, about six years ago that I wanted to do it myself. Um, you know, I had actually thought when I went to law school that after about 20 years of practice, I would switch and run a business. Um, the business I thought I would go into was in the food and beverage industry. And then I realized how hard folks really have to work in that industry and what a, what a tough industry it is, which this was pre-COVID and I still thought that. Um, so I really admire folks who are, are working in that space. And we work with a lot of them actually in our firm. Um, but realized that why not start a firm? That's that's what I know best. Um, and so it's been a real journey. We've really enjoyed growing it. When we started, the firm primarily handled IP litigation because and also uh, commercial litigation because those were the, my principal practice areas. But over time, I found that uh, loved working with emerging growth clients. Um, so businesses really like mine now, right, who've been around at least three to five years and who are growing and scaling their business and really helping them make a difference. And so that's been the, the best, I think, benefit for me from starting my own firm is being able to work with a wider variety of clients. So not just the large company clients, which I've worked with my whole career and we still work with, but also businesses like mine because they, 
you know, it's, it's where I get to go on the treasure hunt for the IP. Um, and so being an entrepreneur, it's, it's a learning experience every day. And I absolutely love it. Um, certainly there are days that are harder than others, but, uh, it's just, it's like a giant puzzle to figure out what's right for you, what's right for your business, um, who the audience is that you're working with and, and how to deliver better service. And, you know, I guess was it build a better mousetrap. Um, so it's been really a wonderful adventure for me, but it's not for everybody. Yeah. And for a lot of folks it, they, who think about it, um, look, it's scary. It's a, it's a big risk, you know, giving up, uh, potential security and so forth to do it. What, what was the tipping point for you where you said, yeah, you know what, this is really worth it and I want to do it? Well, you know, there's a study out now done by the ABA that's showing a lot of women of my generation, so women around 50 uh, who, you know, toiled in the trenches in big law for decades, reached a point where they said, enough, I'm going to go do it myself and I can do it better. Um, so I don't think my story is different in that regard. I, you know, seen decisions made in firms I was in that maybe I didn't totally agree with them. Um, ultimately at the end of the day, I wanted to chart my own course, just like every other entrepreneur, right? I, I had a, an, a better idea of how things could be done. Um, I thought I could build something better that would work better for me, that would work better for my clients. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it seemed like more of a risk. Maybe it was something about turning or getting close to turning 50, it seemed like more of a risk to not do it uh, than to keep, you know, keep on doing what I was doing. Um, you know, and, and like all risks, you know, you, you they're calculated, you don't just jump. But uh, yeah, there's a certain amount of faith involved that you can do what you're setting out to do. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'd like to you, if you would, please, to share some thoughts, you know, kind of tips and tricks, you know, things to either make sure you do as a new entrepreneur or a budding entrepreneur or things to avoid. You know, what, let, let folks learn from your, your experiences, oh, the good God. and the bad. So uh, I the one thing I wish I had done earlier, what it would be, which we're doing right now, which is hard to do after which is to set up more systems and processes early on. That is absolutely when you work with scaling companies, and I see this in my own clients as well as my own business, the one thing that a, that a business that's scaling really typically needs to work on is to actually have systems and processes and develop those um, and make sure that you know it's not all in your head or in one key employee's head to really start to document things and to, to do that early. Um, now, sometimes that's hard to do because you may not have developed everything yet. And so the other thing that, that you need to do is not be afraid to try things. Um, that's one thing I did do right. You know, you, you try an approach, you try, you know, maybe we'll try working with this client or we'll try this marketing message. You have to sort of listen to the market. And that's, I think, something that people have a hard time doing. And from my perspective, I think that's what makes you successful. Uh, I had a, I have a client who said to me at one point, you know, it's really easy to run a business when times are good, right? Everyone can do that. The question is, what do you do when something goes wrong? Because inevitably something's not going to go the way you want it. Something will go wrong. I, I hesitate to say wrong, but it's just, you know, because I don't know that there's a wrong or right in this. And so you can't quit too early. I think a lot of people do that. And you just have to look at it instead of looking at it as, you know, a failure or looking at it as things going wrong or really negative it's a journey. It's a learning experience. And so you, you just have to really just try things and see what happens, but listen, be, be really open because you may hear something that isn't what you wanted to hear. That wasn't your idea. 
And you may, I mean, I've seen businesses go in completely different directions than where the founders first thought they would take them because they listened to the market and, and heard that whatever their idea they started with sucked and nobody wanted to buy it. And so, but there was this other thing that somebody wanted to buy that was really awesome. And so you just have to really be open and, and not rigid in your thinking and just be willing to iterate, to try things, to pivot, and really cannot be afraid of failing. You just, you just have to have faith that you'll figure it out. Yeah, and you know what? That's a recurring theme. I do hear that a lot from entrepreneurs, uh, and usually it's the successful ones. Uh, fear of failure. You've you got to move past that. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, and, and thanks for being a guest here on Behind the Numbers. Hopefully you'll come back again sometime, and we can continue to take a deeper dive into the world of IP. My pleasure. It was fun being here. Thank Th you. Awesome. And thank you for watching and listening to Behind the Numbers. Wherever you're watching and listening, please do hit the subscribe button so you can stay in contact with us and all that we're up to. My name is Dave Bookbinder, and until I talk to you again, take care, everybody.